have you been inspired this year by the songs, sermons, and services from Mishkan on this very podcast? Then we invite you to consider a donation of any size to help us bring more inspiration in the new year. There's a link to donate in the show notes. From all of us at Mishkan Chicago, thank you. Hello and welcome to a very contact Chai Hanukkah. Today's Shabbat replay is an inspiring sermon on the inclusive universality of the Hanukkah, delivered by Rabbi Stephen at our Saturday morning Shabbat, where we welcomed students from Mensch Academy to showcase their work this semester. Now, take it away, Rabbi. So um, one of the things I love about what's happening in the hallway out there is that that is actually something that I, as somebody who works at Mishkan, gets to experience often because we have a, a flex working space, which, which sometimes can be a little challenging, but one of the advantages is that I get to see what's happening in the Mensch Academy and other programs all the time. When you say we have a flex working space, can you describe what that means for somebody who's never been in our office? It is a large room with a lot of rolling tables and chairs that can go in many different configurations. Um, that is used for that is, that is used for Mensch Academy and adult Academy. education and work and meetings and occasionally uh, Hanukkah gatherings and I mean every, everything. Yeah. Everything that doesn't happen basically in this space or to you happens in that space. Um, and so it's, it's, it is chaos, but it is creative chaos, which I love. And one of the things I love is being able to see what's happening in other programs, even if I'm not participating in them. And so I was walking by all, I also, I'm a, a chronic whiteboard user, so I unfortunately have to, I'm sorry, have to erase what's on the whiteboard from Mensch Academy. But one of them was questions about the Torah. And one of the questions that stood out to me among many good questions, like, why does it smell weird? Um, <laughs> it does, if you've ever been close to Torah, is why do we read it over and over and over again? Like, we, like, why don't we get a new story? Like, we keep coming back every year to the same story. This time, next year, we'll be reading the same parsha, the same Torah portion. But I believe that coming back by turning the Torah over and over again, we get to pay attention to a new small detail every time we revisit it. We get to notice something new, even if it's just a word or a few words. And the rabbis believe the tradition we inherit is that every single word, not even maybe even every letter, has a deep significance to it. We cannot ignore even a single word or phrase. And so there's a very small moment in the text that we just read that actually unlocks one of my favorite midrashim, one of my favorite rabbinic stories that I want to share with you today. So our parsha, our weekly Torah portion, opens up with a very peculiar gift. We're told, as Rabbi Lizzie explains earlier, that Joseph was his father's favorite son, a fact that really sets the stage for this intra-family drama and near fratricide that we just read about. Jacob gifts his son a katonet pasim, an amazing technicolor dream coat, or, or more woodenly translated as an ornamented tunic. A gift, I believe, a gift, and we are in the gifting season, a good gift is one that really reflects the person who's receiving it. It says, right, a good gift, when you receive a good gift and you feel seen by what somebody gives you, right, it feels really significant. And it's really exciting when you're like going to give a gift. You're like, I know that this is something that is a beautiful reflection of something I appreciate about this person. 
And so we're told, right, Joseph being the favorite son is given this peculiar gift of the katona pasim. So what does this tell us? What does this peculiar gift tell us about Joseph as seen through the eyes of a loving father? So to unlock these words, we actually need to go back a few chapters. So I want to I set the stage. This is before Joseph is born. The sisters, Leah and Rachel, are both pregnant. They have a, a I'd call it a tense but loving relationship that has been put under strain by being married to the same man, Jacob, who clearly favors the latter, Rachel, over the former, Leah. This is not a good model for a consensual and communicative polyamory, by the way. <laughs> Leah and... It really isn't. Leah and Rachel have been competing for Jacob's favor by trying to have children, and because this is a patriarchal society, sons specifically. So, so much so, they are so competitive that they have actually forced their slaves to become surrogates on their behalf, which is deeply problematic and would be an entirely different sermon, and I'm happy to talk about that over lunch. So at this point, Leah has six sons. Bilhah and Zilpah, the slaves, have two each, and Rachel, none. So when we are first introduced to Leah, she is described as having weak or soft eyes. Ene Leah Rachot. Yet it's suggested that maybe instead of reading rachot, we should read arukot, a similar word, just by adding an olive to the beginning, which means long. That perhaps Leah's weak eyes aren't weak in the sense that she can't see, but that she actually has foresight, perhaps even like a prophetic ability in some way. This is like one of my favorite reads of this text. So whether through this prophetic ability or just through her own intuition and understanding, the rabbis teach that Leah understood that Jacob was destined to only have 12 sons, the future 12 tribes of Israel. And Leah also knows, at the moment that I introduce these two into our story, that she is pregnant with a male child, and Rachel is pregnant with a female child. So we have to do the math. Math is not my strong suit. I'm a rabbi. But right, if Leah already has six sons, right, and Bilhah and Zilpah have two each, and only 12 sons will be born to Jacob, are we, are we following along? Okay, could have numbers of people in the room. Then Rachel would only be able to have how many sons? One. Only one son if Leah is also pregnant with a male child at this point. And in this patriarchal society, boo patriarchy, she would then have a lesser status than the two enslaved women. And so Leah prays. And miraculously, through her prayer, the sex of the two children change in utero. Right? And so Leah, instead of giving birth to a son, a seventh son, she gives birth to her daughter, Dina. And Rachel, instead of giving birth to a daughter, gives birth to her son, Joseph. But here's the thing. This is why this is like my favorite midrash ever. The rabbis teach that although the physical bodies of these two children changed, their souls did not. And so we're actually introduced to the first gender non-conforming or non-binary or trans characters in the biblical text. And if you don't believe me, the rabbis bring proof texts. For Dina, we go back to when she wanders from the camp. Vatetse Dina. And Dina went out to see the woman of the area. Who else, Vayetse's? Just a few parshiot ago. It's actually the heading of that parsha. Her father, the very opening of that parsha, Vayetze Yaakov mi Beersheva, and Jacob went out to Beersheva, or from Beersheva, to strike out alone, the rabbis teach, especially at a time that was a very patriarchal society, very dangerous 
for women to be out alone. This was seen as a particularly masculine act. And what about Joseph? What's his proof text? His katona pasim. You almost forgot about that, right? We started with that. There's only one other katona pasim in the entire Bible. Does anybody know what it is? Right? Great. Yeah. And it belongs to Tamar. This is in the second book of Samuel. And when this garment is described in the second book of Samuel, we're told that a katona pasim is specifically worn. It's specifically for virgin princesses. So Jacob, in gifting Joseph his katona pasim, is really saying, I see you for the gender-fluid, perhaps non-binary, perhaps trans individual that you are. Or in other words, work queen. (laughs) I had to. So I'm sharing this midrash in this space here today with our Mensch Academy students around us, not only because it's fun and it plays with words and it shows the importance of deeply analyzing these texts and why we return to them over and over again, but it also points to the fact that a nuanced and multifaceted understanding of gender is indigenous to Judaism. The rabbis 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the rabbis conceived of at least six different gender categories. Yes, male and female, but also intersex and non-binary. They understood these categories were mutable, that they could change. I'll tell you about the great Midrash that talks about Abraham and Sarah, the progenitors of the Jewish people, going through a gender transition another time. That's also a great Midrash. And it's also a rabbinic Midrash from like 2,000 years ago. And this fact, this fact is vitally important right now. Despite recent wins, and I know Rabbi Lizzie highlighted this last week, which we can and absolutely should celebrate, the LGBTQ community in this country is under attack by legislators, by armed protesters outside of drag queen story hours, by gunmen coming into spaces that are supposed to be safe and sacred for us and violating that safety. And so many of these people have masqueraded their bigotry under the banner of religious freedom. But I want to say, I've said this before and I'll say it again, religion does not belong to the right. It belongs to us as well. And our faith and our culture and our tradition says unequivocally that queer people of all ages exist, that we have always existed, that from Dina and Joseph to Edie Windsor and Harvey Milk, we are links in the chain of tradition that connects Jews of today with the Jews we just read about in the Torah. And as such, we have a place in community. We have a place in this community. You have a place here at Mishkan, not simply to be tolerated, but to be lifted up and celebrated. This is the driving principle of the Mensch Academy, and all of our educational programming at Mishkan, that each of us should feel loved, should feel safe enough to be our whole selves, even if we don't know what that whole self is. I was just in a meeting the other day with some parents at Mishkan, and a kid joined the call, and we often introduce ourselves with our names and our pronouns. And the kid said, this is my name, and my pronouns are he, she, they. I'm like, great. Like, how beautiful is that to feel so safe? You can think big and courageously about who you might want to be in the world and how different that was from, I know, the way I was raised and the religious community that I was raised in. 
The primary mitzvah of Hanukkah is not simply to kindle the lights of the menorah, but to share that light with the world by placing the candles in our doors and our windows. And yes, on one hand, the Hanukkah is a universal and incredibly important reminder that each of us has the ability to create light within the deepest darkness, both actual and metaphorical. But it is also a symbol of particularity, remembering a time when we as a people refused to be anything other than deeply Jewish, despite the forces that sought to eradicate us. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, she'asa nisim lavotenu bayimim hahem bazman hazeh, blessed is the source of all things who wrought miracles for our ancestors in their day, in this season. It is a bold assertion, putting your Hanukkah in the window is a bold assertion of nonconformity, of daring uniqueness, of brilliant individuality. It is a reminder that our particular light, whether we are straight or queer or cis or trans or male or female or non-binary, or we're still discovering who we are, is a world so lost in darkness that our light is desperately required. So as you gather around the Hanukkah tomorrow, as you light that first light, know that each of you, and especially the little ones here today, each of you carry a light within you that only you can kindle, that only you can bring to the world, as you are, just as you are meant to be. And watch the incredible miracle that that one small flame, that one small flame we begin with, can push away the darkness. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening.